I'd love to look with you in the few minutes we have left in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. So if you would turn there if you have a copy of the Scriptures. Otherwise, it's on the screen behind me. It's also in the bulletin. I'm going to read to you from uh, verses 17 through 20. As you're turning there or looking at it in the bulletin, uh, I want to remind you that this summer we're spending time rummaging through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. So we're spending our time over these next 12 weeks through the summer months thinking about those chapters together. And you might remember, just to set the framework for where we are and what we're doing, you might remember that we started at the end. So the end of the Sermon on the Mount covers from chapter 7 through verses 13 through 29. That's the end. That's the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we started. Because Jesus is telling us in those verses and showing us that he's really after the foundation of our lives. He really wants us to think about, yeah, there might be two paths and there might be different types of fruit that you can have. And you might say that you do these things and the judgment is coming. But ultimately, how's all that connected to your foundation? Are you building your life? Am I building my life? Are we building our lives on the rock or are we building it on something else? That's where Jesus is going in the Sermon on the Mount. Then last week, we looked at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And in those verses, what we learned together and thought about together is that God is actually forming a cruciform community, that God is molding and shaping a people by and through the cross of Jesus. And what that means is that this community is formed by a people that know that they are needy. A cruciform community is not only a community in which we understand that we're needy, we also are being given new life. We're given new life. And last week in particular, we looked at that we are to live this new life for the life of the world. That we're to be salt and light no matter where we are, no matter where God scatters us for his glory. So this morning, we're starting the middle section of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is going to tell us basically three things that we really, really need, all right? So listen to this, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. This is the Word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words. As we were reminded this morning already, you are pastoring us through this message. That you are speaking to us and addressing us and getting at the heart. Convince us in new ways that all of your word is really the language of our heart, that we like to externalize things at times and live there. And even though we know, Lord, that it is important how we live externally, what is true 
is that you change us from the inside out. So help us, we pray, to think about our lives, to understand these words, to give glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Very quickly, what is it that you think that you need? If you were to really take inventory of your life, if you were to think about your job, if you were to think about your relationships, if you were to think about what's on your calendar this week, if you think about whatever is going on in your life, what is it that you think you really, really need? Maybe it's, maybe you found deep security or deep hope in understanding more of your Enneagram number. Like that's brought a tremendous amount of, you know, like freedom to your life. You feel like that has revolutionized the way you look at yourself. So maybe you feel like if you just knew more and more about being a mixture of a two and a five, that it might make more sense to your life. Or if you understood what it meant to be a one or a nine, that it might just make sense. What is it that you really, really need? Is your deepest need a she shed? <laughs> Metaphorically or literally? Do you just need a she shed? Maybe, maybe what you need is a good vacation. Now this I'm gonna get into a little bit more serious. That it's not just that you need one on the calendar, it's that you really need a good vacation in which there's real time to rest and recharge and enjoy being with family, friends, whatever it is. Maybe, maybe you feel like you really need a good, good vacation. Because I know most of us take vacations and we come back and we need a vacation from our vacation, right? What is it that you really think that you need? More free time, less obstacles? What is it that you really need? Beloved, God is telling us over and over that what we really need is good news to continue to come into our lives. We need the good news of Jesus to go deeper and deeper into us, to get inside of us. Because so often we live our lives every day not thinking about good news. We're thinking about a to-do list. We're thinking about something else. We're thinking about fixing something. And God is telling us over and over we need the good news of what Jesus has done to get inside of us. And when we read these verses, when you read them with me, chapter, chapter 5, 17 through 20, Jesus is unleashing the word of God on us. He is unleashing the good news on us. And he's telling us that we really need three things. Three things that we need incessantly. That's what we're going to look at in these verses this morning. There are three things that we incessantly need. We're going to start in verse 18. First one is this. We need an everlasting word. We need an everlasting word. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, beloved, Jesus is not talking about heaven and earth ceasing at some point in the future to exist, okay? That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying there's going to come a time in which heaven will be no more and earth will be no more as if there will be a day when these things don't exist. He's not talking about that at all. What he's saying is that there will be a time in which heaven and earth will not exist in its current state. There's coming a time, the day is coming, in which all will be renewed, 
in which everything, to use Jesus' word explicitly, will be regenerated and made new. What this verse is telling you, what verse 18 is actually telling us, is Jesus' view of the Bible. He's saying not one jot or tittle. That is the smallest parts of letters. The smallest parts of letters of God's word will not pass away. Those of you that are learning your letters, children that are learning how to write, this is what Jesus is saying. Those little marks, when you're learning how to write lowercase letters, the little marks that make the difference between a lowercase c and an e, Jesus is saying that will never pass away. Those of you that are learning to write your letters, you know the the O, the lowercase O that you make? You need one more stroke to make a D, right? Jesus is saying that tiny of a stroke, that smallest little mark will not pass away. He's saying what God says, every piece of it, every part of Scripture, even the smallest detail is true. And it's not only true, and it's not just something that we're supposed to believe. God's word is not just something that we are to study. God's word is not something that we are to follow only. What Jesus is saying here is that it's not only true in all those ways, it comes true. It's not just objectively real. It is reality. Everything is going to be, look at verse 18, accomplished. You might wonder, well, what is all? All. Until everything, until all of it is accomplished. Everything that God has in store for the entire world will be absolutely 100%. It will occur. It will happen. It will come true. It will come true. And that means that if we're going to live by this everlasting word, if we need an everlasting word, then we need to think about, well, what words are we living by? What words are you living by? What are the words that have meant much in your life? What are the words that you think about all the time? Whether at home or at work, no matter what you're doing, what words are you living by? What words have held you down? What words have communicated to you that you're a horrible person or a horrible parent? Because if you're like me, there are times in life in which you're dealing with your kids and you just, you misstep, you sin against them, and you just think, I'm a horrible parent. You ever had those moments? What are those words? What are those words that you're living by? When is it that people have told you that you are worthless? You might remember when I was in kindergarten, I had a teacher that called me retarded. I think about that a lot. Those are words that hold us down. Those kinds of words hold us down. Those words are hard to overcome, right? What words are you living by? Is it like the words of, you know, ignore your weaknesses? The words of, you're better than other people. What words are you living by? Because the truth is, they will all pass. They won't last. And if there are words that are holding you down, that are simply not true, the only thing that will set you free is the everlasting word of God. 
Here's, this is taken from someone's journal from a long, long time ago. You've heard me say it before, but I can't put eternal, everlasting words in any sharper focus than this. So if you're willing to apply this to your life, then take this and work it out in whatever you are doing this week. Here is the everlasting word, the message of Christianity, the message of Jesus that will not fade away. Here it is. Your good things will never be taken away. The bad things always work out for good. And the best is yet to come. That's the everlasting word. That's the message of the gospel. That God will do all of that. Our good things will never be taken away. Our bad things will work out for good. The best is yet to come. Beloved, those are words to live by. Those are everlastingly true. Second thing that we need incessantly is a fulfilling Savior. Look at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When you think about the life of Jesus, there must have been something about him that made many people think that he wasn't interested in God's commandments. It must have been that Jesus was doing so many things and saying so many things that people began to think that he wasn't really interested in God's commandments at all. They thought perhaps that he was setting aside the law of God. And Jesus breaks in to how he knows he is being perceived to make sure that we know what he thinks about God's commandments and God's law. You know, maybe they thought this about Jesus because he spent an awful lot of time with known broken people and scandalous people. Maybe people thought this because they saw him spending time with people who weren't only like well-known public sinners, but also with those who are severely broken. There were times in which he would even do things on the Sabbath, and those that were super religious thought, well, he doesn't care about that commandment. He doesn't care about following that, because from their vantage point, which we'll explain more in a little bit, they thought that he was absolutely wrong and breaking God's commandments. They even observed Jesus say things like, you are forgiven. I forgive you. Surely that blew their minds to hear that there's a Jesus who is not only around people who are known sinners, but he's actually declaring that forgiveness is found in himself. Jesus wasn't concerned about political power. They certainly were. Maybe that they thought, well, that means he's not concerned about the commandments of God. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time telling people how to find answers as much as he did I am the answer. And maybe, surely that and um, hundreds of other things made people think he was not interested in God's commands. He wasn't interested in God's law at all. But Jesus says explicitly here, oh no, I am not against the Old Testament 
at all. I'm not against it at all. I haven't come so much to support uh, the Old Testament or even expand the Old Testament. I haven't even come so much to teach the Old Testament, and I certainly haven't come to do away with it. I have come to fulfill it. That's what he's saying. I have come to fulfill. You see, Jesus was deeply connected to the Old Testament. He's deeply connected to the people of the Old Testament. He's deeply connected to the whole message of the Old Testament. Let me try to apply this. You know, and many of you have experienced this, I know, because I've talked with you. We can all read the Bible as if the Bible is about us, right? We can all read the Bible as if it's about us and totally miss the fact that the Bible's actually about Jesus. So let me give you a quick little grid by which to understand when you study the Bible or go through Bible studies or talk to folks about the scriptures, let me give you a quick diagnostic grid so that you can tell if the message that comes across is this, the Bible, the Old Testament is about you, or if the Bible, the Old Testament is about Jesus. If you are ever reading a book, ever listening to a sermon, ever in a Bible study, ever talking about the scriptures in which this is the grid. Look at what they did. Therefore, here's what you're supposed to do. And then blessing will follow. If that's the grid in which you have learned the Bible or talk about the Bible or read books about the Bible, that is completely missing it. That's the grid in which we believe or begin to believe falsely that the Bible's about us. Remember, simple. Here's what they did. Here's what you're supposed to do. And if you do that, blessing will follow. That is a self-absorbed way of teaching and looking at the Bible. And it completely misses that the Bible is about Jesus. Now, let me tell you what this means for you and me. If the Bible's about Jesus, if Jesus is saying, I'm not coming so much to teach it, I'm not, certainly not coming to do away with it, I'm coming to fulfill the scriptures. If that is true, then let me tell you what it means for you and for me. Jesus based his entire life on the scriptures. His entire life. His mind and heart and all that he was was so full of the scripture that it defined everything for him. He was saturated with God's word. It was always on his heart. You know how we know that? Go with me here for a minute. I want you to think this is me taking something from someone else and making it my own. Go with me on this if you would. I want you to think about, if you can, the hardest, most difficult day of your life. Just briefly. Think about the hardest, most difficult day of your life. And I'm not talking about the hard, difficult days in which you're going through something really challenging and you think to yourself, oh, what should I do? What should I say? I'm talking about the things that is so hard and so difficult that the only thing that comes out of you is just instinct. Meaning you're beyond thinking, what should I do or what should I think? It's just the moment when your instincts come out 
whether that's collapsing, whether that is being emotional, whatever it is, where you are in those hard moments in which all of your instincts come out. Beloved, those are the moments in which you know what is at the deepest core of our being, right? The most difficult day of Jesus' life was when he was on the cross. And do you know what he experienced when he was on the cross? The full wrath of God, enduring the consequences of the sins of his people. And in that moment, which was incredibly difficult, and he felt absolutely separated from his father and forsaken by him, do you know what came out of him? Scripture. In the most difficult moments, what came out of Jesus, what was his instinct was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, quoting Scripture. Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit, quoting Scripture. It is finished, quoting Scripture. What this means for us is that when he says that he came to fulfill the scripture, it means that even and certainly while he was dying for you and me, he was fulfilling everything for us. Do you see that? He didn't come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it. He didn't come just to teach it or expand. He certainly didn't come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it for you and for me. That's what he came to do. That's the amazing truth of what the cross means. And what that means for us is that not only did he do this for us, because we won't do that. The times when I've been at the lowest in my life and stripped down and absolutely in the difficult moments, I can tell you the instinct that came out of me was not scripture. Those moments when I've been down and like beyond the ability to think about what should I say or what should I do, like beyond that in which I was absolutely out of my depth in every conceivable way, what God's word didn't come out of me. What came out of me was thoughts about me, thoughts about anger, thoughts about frustration. You see, Jesus in those same moments cried out, Scripture. Because we won't. We're that far from God. We're that far away from living life in that kind of unity with God. But Jesus wasn't. And that means when he fulfilled that for us, he did what we would never do and won't do. And he also fulfills the scripture because it's what he's working into us. So it's not as though that we should hear this and think, oh, well, I just need to go and memorize scripture more so that whenever I'm down and out, it'll just come out of me. Look, that would be glorious. And what I'm telling you is you can try to do that all you want to, but it can't be mechanical. Jesus has got to do that in you. In other words, we've got to be more like him. We've got to see what he's done for us so that we know what he's working into us. This is also what the Spirit does. The Spirit does what we cannot do in the flesh. What the Spirit does is works God's word into us and works into us the commandments of God, all that he says, all of his will, all of his promises. Beloved, this is good news for you and me.
This is the gospel. The third thing we need is extravagant grace. Look at what Jesus says in 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You might hear that and immediately think, why does Jesus say this? Why does Jesus say that we need to do a better job of following the law, that we need to do a better job than the scribes and Pharisees, or else we're not going to enter heaven. I thought everything was by grace. Why does Jesus say that our righteousness has to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? Why does he want us to look at the scribes and Pharisees and say, we have to be better than they are? That doesn't sound like grace at all, does it? Why does he say that? And just so you know, the scribes and Pharisees were thought They were viewed as the experts of the law of God. They were the ones everybody looked up to as being super spiritual and knowledgeable and understanding. What they did is they looked at the Old Testament and realized there are about 613 commands. And they thought, you know what? If you break one of those commands, you're in trouble. So here's what we should do. Let's create 1,500 more. So if we create 1,500 more in addition to the 600, and if we avoid the 1,500 that we establish and say is true and good, therefore we can avoid sin. That was their whole mentality of thinking about obedience. That was their entire mentality of thinking about God's word. Here's what he says. We can add our laws to it, and therefore we can avoid sinning. That was their whole mentality. How many of us have thought that obedience to God means this is how I can avoid sin? How many of us have thought in our lives, you know what? Growing looks like sinning less. How many of us have thought in our lives, you know what becoming more like Christ looks like? That there's greater amounts of time in between my repenting. Maybe you haven't been there like I have. We are so prone to use God's commands to think, well, if I just do this, I'm good. And if I add to it, then I'll never even get close to sinning. Meanwhile, what do we leave out? The heart. We just conform externally in our behavior, and we think everything's great. You see, the Pharisees had this whole system about how they could avoid sinning. And by the way, there are all kinds of different classes of those of Pharisees and living this way. Some of them said and thought this, well, if I do all these things, then I'll earn favor with God. Class one, Pharisee. Here's a second one. Submit to man-made rules and end up acting as if those rules are equal with God's rules. Class two, Pharisee. Some even thought this, you know, if I follow all of these and I obey what God says, then I can retain his favor. And all of their mentality together and our mentality together when we fall into this is where we focus so much on obedience that we forget the more important things of God. So we just become focused on self and what we do or what we don't do, not basking in the grace of God and his forgiveness that not only forgives but leads us to become more like Christ. See, When you think about this, 
and you think about what Jesus is saying here, if you're struggling with wondering, well, these guys are just idiots, no wonder Jesus is saying this. Now he's describing all of us. If you want to know how much of a Pharisee we all are, if you want to know how much is still within us that functions like a Pharisee, just think about this. How do you relate to people? Do you relate to people based on whether or not they meet your expectations? Or do you relate to people based upon whether or not they actually sin? We love to create a whole system of how we're supposed to relate. We forget entirely about if someone sins or not. Because if people aren't sinning, then by all means, we ought to assume the best. And we ought to want the best. Not create all these other rules in which people have to follow. But relating to others based on what God clearly says or what he doesn't. Jesus wasn't saying here that we had to be better than the scribes and Pharisees at their own game. Jesus is not looking at us and saying, you know what, the scribes and Pharisees, they've taken the 613 and they've added 1,521 to it and you need to add more than that. Jesus is not saying, look at the way they live and just add some more laws to it and make it your own. He's saying, no, I'm not saying you have to be better than them at their own game at all because their game only leads to pride and greater insecurity. If you go back through and read the Sermon on the Mount, what you find is how many times they want to give or pray in public so that everybody can approve them. They want to do things in public because they're not secure inside. They want to convince everyone else, well, this is how you're supposed to live, and if you don't do this, you're wrong because they're constantly looking for approval. And Jesus is saying, you don't have, you'll never win at that game. You need a righteousness that is way beyond that. It's totally different. What Jesus says in these verses, 19 and 20, is absolutely saturated with grace. He demands a higher righteousness that is beyond us. It's beyond a system that we can construct. This past week, John Paul was in Dallas at General Assembly and the committee that he served on uh, was the committee that oversees the, um, basically the financial assets of our denomination. And every year, uh, our denomination gets audited. You know what this is, right? Someone who's outside of our denomination looks at what we're doing and audits the way we've done everything, the way we've handled our money and our assets, assets and resources. What Jesus is saying here is very similar. You know, every year in the same way that we have to turn over the life of our company, the life of our organization, the life of our denomination to someone else to scrutinize what we're doing with our resources and financial things so that someone else gets to look at all the ins and outs of everything. Someone gets to go through everything that we're doing, all expenses, all receipts, everything. And then they give you an outside opinion of how things are. They get to weigh in on what our status actually is, on the health of our organization, financially speaking, and makes a declaration about that. 
This is exactly what God does for us through Jesus. That he says you can't have a righteousness that you conjure up yourself. You can't form a system of life in which you create all these rules and therefore think that everything's going to be okay. You need someone who is outside of you, who's not you, to look at your life. And God does that through his word. God does that through Jesus. And he provides us with an external audit, not of our finances, but of our heart, of our soul. And what he does is he looks at us and says, you know, if you just try to live for self, it doesn't work. If you're just trying to use me to get a life that you think you want, it doesn't work. What God does is he looks at us and he says, you, you don't measure up. You don't satisfy all the requirements that I have. You aren't healthy inside, in your heart. You're not healthy at a heart level. It's not good. But what God says is, but Jesus has taken on your life. But Jesus has lived perfectly, fulfilling everything that I want. Jesus has done all of that. And he was willing to go on the cross to endure all the consequences that our failed life deserves. And Jesus did all of that. And because of that, we get a superior rating. We get a declaration of righteous because of Jesus. Beloved, the three things that we incessantly need that you need this week, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, no matter what's happening is you need God's everlasting word. You need a fulfilling Savior. And we all need extravagant grace that Jesus is telling us about and providing for us here. That grace that means that our righteousness goes way beyond the scribes and Pharisees. It goes all the way to the God-man. And we find our life in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your words are true. We thank you that they will all come to pass. That everything will be accomplished that your word says. So we ask that you would help us to give ourselves to you afresh. To come to you with all that we are and receive all that you are for us. So that this week we live by faith. We live by faith in what you have done. Not living by faith in what we think we will do. But live by what you have done for us. In your name, amen.